Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Good morning, beloved. Good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles you, or, or you want to grab one from the pew, uh, we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 17. That's on uh, page 984. And if you don't have a Bible or need one, uh, you can take that home with you today. Nobody will chase you down to grab it. We won't even notice that you probably have it. So there you go. So I want to start with a parable this morning that was written by... <clears throat> Her name is Karen Maines. Wrote a, it's in a book of hers from long ago. But here's the parable. Uh, I want you to imagine this scene, if you can. A wedding ceremony. Everybody can think of a wedding ceremony. You've probably been to one released recently. And in front of the church, there is the groom and, of course, his groomsman and uh, the pastor, probably. And everybody is seated, and there's lots of flowers everywhere. And everyone is waiting for the arrival. You know what I mean, the arrival, the bride. So the music plays, and in come the uh, bridesmaids. And, and then the organ just swells or whatever. And then everybody stands, and they await the glorious entry of the bride, who is going to be ravishing and beautiful in the guy. He's standing down here. His shoes are polished for this woman. That's how much she means to him. And then she, she walks in, and there's this gasp by the audience and silence. And they look at her, and she is a mess. I mean, not just a mess. Her gown is torn. She's got gashes in her arms. She's got a big black and blue eye, her hair is all a mess, and she's stumbling in. And everyone's wondering, doesn't this, bri- bri- doesn't this groom deserve better than this? The end of the parable, Karen Maine says, the bride is the church. She's been fighting again. Looks like this. Now, There are a lot of family feuds that are ugly, but church feuds are probably the worst. At least, I think they are. Um, And there's many reasons for church conflicts. Uh, There's as many reasons as there are Baptists and Methodists and Charismatics and Presbyterians. But the real cause, I think we could boil it down to pride and spiritual and emotional immaturity and resistance to change. And in all of the church assessments that uh, we have done, um, one of the things that we find is that the, the younger people of a church, they, they want to push that church forward. They want changes. And then, and then there's the older folks like us, you know, like me, and we just dig our heels in. We don't want to have any change. And then this middle-aged group, they're just trying to catch up. You know, they don't know what's going on. They're just looking around going, I hope I can last. So, so there's a lot of that that goes on. But have you noticed that God is extremely hospitable? He lets all kinds of people come into his church. Rich and poor, married, unmarried, divorced, PhDs and GEDs, every background, every race, every language, everybody with life, uh, different life experiences, distinct cultures, different subcultures, an almost limitless number of, uh, of interests. 
But I think there's something going on underneath the surface of all of that that, that uh, we, we, we don't often recognize. And that is that the people in God's church are basically mixed up, broken up, and changing all the time. We're changing all the time because the Spirit of God is transforming us all the time. And then we start rubbing shoulders with one another in the pews, and then, you know, things begin to happen. There's people in the pews who come who are like solid Christians. They've been Christians for years who are sitting right next to people who are wondering, I, whether or not, I wonder, wonder whether or not God loves me. Can I, can I find a connection with him once again? This, this diversity that is the church is really the glory of the church. You know, in Psalm 133, it says, How wonderful, how beautiful it is when the people of God dwell together in unity. That's the glory of the church, but it's also the glory of Jesus that he brings in all of these kinds of people, and he calls them precious. Now, this can irritate us. It can rub us the wrong way. We can become impatient and intolerant of others, and the sparks of conflict are touched off. But there's good news in our text this morning because Paul is teaching us how to overcome these differences, how we can grow in grace by applying the gospel uh, to the, every aspect of life and bringing us into focus of what we all share in common, and that is Christ himself. So I want to make some preliminary remarks before we read this text. Um, one of the unfortunate realities of our English translations is that they're not sufficiently southern enough. Here's what I mean. A lot of times when you, we read the English word you, and Paul says you, he doesn't mean you individually. He means y'all. So we need it like a southern dialect in some of our translations because the word y'all is really the most prominent word for you in the New Testament. Rarely does Paul ever say you individually unless he's talking to Timothy. So we're going we're gonna to have to keep that in mind as we read this text and remember that this is for... Oh, come on. You knew better than that. This is for... Yeehaw! All right. I'm, I'm sorry. I had, a, <laughs> I had a friend from Kentucky who used to start our worship services that way. It drove me crazy. And that's another, that's another story. Let's not go into it. All right. So, so, Paul is saying here, it's like from verse 9. We're going to start with verse 14. But he's, from verse 9 forward, he's saying, look, we're not like the way we used to be. We've put off all that old stuff, and we put on new stuff. It's like, it's like saying we put off our rags as slaves, and we're putting on black tie and evening gowns. And then he says this in verse, in verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with all thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this word. This is your word to Cornerstone Church this morning. We pray that you will help us to hear your word, to obey your word, and to put on the love of Christ because 
We don't have that love unless you give it to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. As I was reflecting on this sermon yesterday afternoon, I was reading it before the evening service, uh, the, the evening service last night, and I was thinking, man, this sounds like a, a lot like a coach in a locker room right before the big game. So I'm just going to approach this that way. You are team cornerstone. We're the, you know, it's like we're the mighty ducks. You know, we're a mess. We don't even really belong here. We couldn't skate when we started, and now, we, now we're at, you know, the playoff game. That's the church. That's a good picture for the church. So I'm going to treat us just like that. We're in the locker room before the big game, and, 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 and this is how I would approach it. Um, the, the, the big game is this, that the church, Cornerstone Church, can offer a kind of outpost of heaven, an attractive and compelling alternative to the world. And Paul has three aspects of Christ's love uh, in the local church that make it attractive. And it's the place where the peace of Christ rules, his word is treasured, and his name is our boast. So just the mere mention of staying in unity with Paul means there was some kind of dissension, something going on in the church. And here's how he says we're going to overcome that, that dilemma. It starts with verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. There are few things more desirable in the world than peace. Everybody wants peace. In fact, I read about a historian just this morning who, who died. Don't, I don't recall his name. Uh, and and he, said, he said, war, war in the world is the norm. Peace is the abnormal times. I thought, that's, a rem- that's true, isn't it? I mean, I mean, how many of you have seen wars since World War II all the way through, and you think, you know, a peace maybe lasts a couple of years at most, I mean, around the world, and the world really thinks that the absence of conflict and war is the definition of peace, but that is not the case. So in the church, in the church, what we want with all of those differences that have the potential to separate us is that there would be a peace that rules in our lives. And given the possibilities, how does a church maintain this gift of unity from the Spirit? You know, should we simply ignore them like they don't really exist and pretend that they're not there and, you know, we just know they're rumbling underneath the surface? Or, or maybe we should just let Pastor Jamie make all the decisions and call it good, right? Wouldn't that be all right? No, he's shaking his head no, so he, he knows. You see, Paul has a better solution here. It starts in verse 14, mentioning that the church is held together by the love of Christ that's shared by y'all. And this love of Christ is the greatest gift that Christians have, and so it deserves, it deserves a lifetime of study to learn about it and to experience it because the New Testament tells us that the love of Christ is permanently and perfectly poured into our hearts. Now, that word poured doesn't mean just a little trickle here and there. It actually means gusher. Think of an oil well that gushes. You don't have to pump it. It just explodes. This is the kind of love that God is giving us every moment of the day as a gusher. And we're told that the love of Christ 
holds us firmly in God's hands and guides our lives. God's love for us will never allow any separation to come between us and Christ. In fact, God's love is so strong, it's intrusive because he will not allow division to come into his body. He will intrude with his love in order to bring peace. And here's why it's so important for us to become expert practitioners in the love of God. Peter and James both quote from the book of Psalms, uh, uh, from the book of Proverbs, that says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, that doesn't mean that we're supposed to ignore these sins. It's just like, oh, I'm going to turn a blind eye to, to my brother or my sister who, who has fallen, fallen into some kind of sin. Here's what it does mean. On the one hand, it means refusing to delight in the sins of others when they fail. You know how that works in the church? In a very terrible way. It's like, I can't wait to tell my friend what this other friend has just done. I just, I just delight in it, but I'm going to couch it in terms of prayer. Will you please, please pray for this? That's a, that's a delight in somebody else's failure. So we refuse that. We reject it. That's not for us. And on the other hand, it means that we become the instruments of God's healing power in their lives so that they might find that forgiveness and freedom and healing in Christ. So what does that look like in the church? Well, the first expression of that kind of love is that we commit ourselves to actively pursue the peace of Christ, which umpires the church. That's actually the word that Paul uses there when he says rules. An umpire is, is a person, uh, he took this out of the athletic world, and we certainly understand it. The, the umpire is the one who, who designates, you know, balls and strikes or TDs and illegal procedures. Umpires are there to maintain the order of the game and not allow it to get out of control. And the church ought never to have pew-clearing brawls. Actually, you've heard of that. So how's it work? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the origins of Christ's peace in the church are permanent. They're not circumstantial. Jesus said before he, his crucifixion to his disciples, and therefore he said it to us, peace is what I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Jesus is emphatic that his peace is of a different quality than anything that's offered by the world. Like I said, the world thinks that the absence of conflict is peace. That is not at all Jesus' idea because that kind of peace never lasts, never lasts. But the peace of Jesus is permanent. It's permanent because of where it came from. If you were to flip back to chapter 1 of Colossians and look at verse 20, we can see exactly where this peace came from and why it is permanent. Here's what Paul wrote. Through the Son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his Son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. You see, the peace of God comes with reconciliation with God. There was a gigantic cosmic rupture at the fall, causing dissension, alienation between God and us and us and one another. So instead of the peace that God had planned, right now there is futility and decay, there's hostility. That is the legacy of the fall. But the peace dividend that is won at the cross is permanent 
And this dividend between heaven and earth comes wrapped up in reconciliation. This is the initiative of God belonging wholly to him to bring peace to his people. Now, the second thing is, uh, we might assume that this peace that Paul is talking about is a subjective kind, the one that we personally experience. In fact, in in one of the uh, songs we sang this morning, we see that very idea right in there. It's it's the same sort of thing that you have said or you've heard other Christians say. You know, when making a decision, I I just don't have a peace about that. Um, uh, that, that's what I mean by subjective. It's the kind of peace that's very precious. It comes to us because of a living and personal relationship with Jesus, and it deepens as we grow in his gracious rule in our lives, and so it's a very legitimate application. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here. I think what he has in mind is what I would call an objective kind of peace, and that's the kind of peace that is practiced by all the members of the church. So let's just assume for the sake of the argument that there are differences that arise in the church over some polity, you know, should we have deacons or elders or both, should we have choruses or hymns or, you know, whatever. And Paul's warning is very, very clear. It's, he says, basically, don't marshal your troops to your side of the aisle and start a fight. Instead, Instead, enter into this situation from a position of confidence and humility as the ambassadors of peace. So how do we do that? Well, Paul is very practical about it. In Romans 12, 18, for example, he says, If possible, so far as depends on you. Now, this is y'all again. So far as depends on y'all, live peaceably with all. So far as depends on you. In other words, you must make every effort to bring peace, the the peace of Christ, into that situation. And then he adds later on in Romans, so let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So when we enter into that kind of situation in order to be ambassadors of peace, we're not just calming the waters, we're also building up and strengthening the church as we do it. Now, the third thing is that the way that we let the peace of Christ rule in the church is by humbling ourselves for the sake of others. We put aside our own egos, our own ambitions. This is what it says in Philippians 2, right? If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being full, in full accord, and of one mind. And here's the important part. Do not let selfish ambition or conceit, but in hu- or do nothing in selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. So there it is. That's how we are the, that's how we are the umpires of the peace of Christ, by setting aside our plans, sacrificing our own ego desires and ambitions, our preferences, our demands. Each believer has a significant role to play in the relational peace of a a church. It's not just a duty. It's something that all of us do because we're motivated. We're motivated by the mercy of God. So Christians really do have another title, and that's ambassadors of peace. We actively pursue peace in times of crisis or conflict or even in peaceful times. And we do this by faith. God's Spirit gives us the confidence 
in the work so that we can leave all the results to God. You remember what I said when I quoted Paul from Romans 12, as much as lies within you? That, that is to imply and hint to us that sometimes it's not going to happen, but that's all right. Leave the results to God. God will favor the peacemakers, right? That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers and because they will be called the sons of God. You will be called the sons of God. What a high, high calling. Well, the next way that Christ's love is practiced is when the word, <clears throat> excuse me, enriches the church. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, here again, remember the y'all. This is a y'all word. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in y'all. Therefore, all of the members of the church are responsible to see to it that the gospel is the message that shapes our lives. Now, we believe that once a sinner comes to faith in Christ, his or her life is never going to be the same again. It's not going to be the way it was. The new convert belongs to Jesus just as much as the old convert, and God still has very big plans for every one of his followers uh, to change and reshape the inner life and the outer conduct. Uh, so there's a continual lifetime application of the gospel to every single part of our lives. Just meeting Jesus changes everything. Everything changes. But sometimes, doesn't it seem like things go really slowly? How many of you have experienced, you know, like, man, when I first met Jesus, I mean, the changes were astronomical, but boy, these days, things are going slowly. How many of you, how many of you have experienced that in your Christian life? Okay, well, I've got, I've got a good quote for you here from John Newton, uh, the author of Amazing Grace. I think you will, you will um, uh, identify with it. It's in a letter that he wrote to a friend of his who was very discouraged by the slowness of change going on in his life, Newton wrote, I am not what I ought to be. How many of you say, yeah, that's me. I am not what I ought to be. Not even five minutes ago. I am not what I want to be. How many of you would agree with that? The rest of you probably made it. You've arrived. That's good. Glad to see that. I'm going to give you one more chance because, you know, you've got to be honest. You're in church. I am not what I want to be. Okay. This is the inner, I need this, I don't care if you don't. I am not what I hope to be in another world. Now, here's, what he, here's his final statement. But, still, I am not what I once used to be. How many of you say yes, amen? Thank you, Lord Jesus. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Slow growth isn't the problem in the church. What Paul is after here is to be alert to the problem of toxic gospels in the church. That's a problem for the faith of believers when we promote a different gospel. We should be committed to this idea. And I think this is what Paul wants for the Colossian church, so it's what he wants for Cornerstone. And that is this, that if anyone comes to Cornerstone looking for a message other than the gospel of Christ, 
with its wonderful tenderness and its hard edges. If anyone comes looking for another message than that, our hope is that they will be disappointed. Many false gospels are floating around in the world right now, and they are in the churches. I'll just mention four prominent ones, the gospel of permissive grace. You can do whatever you want because God is a forgiving God, and that's what his job is. That's very cynical. The prosperity gospel, God wants me to be healthy and wealthy. Self-help gospel, Jesus is there to make me feel better about myself. And the last is the moralistic gospel. It's sort of a Jesus plus gospel. I can add my good works for my salvation to what Jesus has given. All of these are not the gospel. The best offense against heresies like these creeping into the church is to make sure that we are filled to the max with sound doctrine. Another way of saying sound is healthy, healthy doctrine. Healthy doctrine makes for healthy Christians who are steeped in the truth of scripture which deeply shapes our lives to be the people that we are supposed to be sitting under the authority of the Word of God. So, so think, of, think of keeping heresy out of the church the way, the way we keep weeds out of a lawn. What you want in a lawn is a thick, lush, rich lawn. And, and, and we do, do a lot of things to get those. We overseed them, we water, mow properly, aerate. Um, and, and all of these things combined create a really thick, well-fed lawn, and that's the best defense you have against weeds because weeds can't find a space to grow or grab on to those nutrients. They just won't take root. So by analogy, the principle is also true for the church. When the church is filled in every nook and cranny of its ministry, every ministry, not just a few, but every single one, then it influences those people involved for good and for transformation. Therefore, the heart of the church must be filled to the brim with the truth of the word. Then heresy can't take a foothold because the gospel is richly abundant to everybody. Now, how does that happen? Does that only happen here on Sundays? No, it happens in so many different ways and, and probably more ways than, than we, have, we have discovered at this point. But Paul gives us three foundational things. Two of them we know and one of them is kind of a surprise. But the first one is teaching, teaching doctrine, basically. I think we understand that. Teaching doctrine means instructing in the word from Genesis to Revelation. Teaching healthy doctrine is primarily aimed at the mind, not only, but primarily. And we, we, we all come into the Christian faith and following Jesus with very different ideas about who God is and about who Christ is. And, and it takes a lifetime to work those ideas out of us so that the truth works into us. Healthy doctrine always challenges these specific false ideas that we have about God. And then the next word Paul uses is admonishing or exhortation or encouraging, some translations will say. So, so his idea here is that we take this healthy doctrine that we're teaching to the mind and we apply it to the heart so that conduct looks like what this doctrine uh, is teaching. So the goal of teaching the Word of God isn't just to fill the head with a bunch of super knowledge, but rather to fill the head that, that seeps down into the, into the heart so that it brings about change. In our marriage coaching, we'll tell a lot of couples, you know, six words from the Word of God will change your life forever, you know, and, and we get kind of quizzical looks when we say that. Um, well, let me tell you how that works. That, that worked in my life very early on. 
Um, I, I didn't know it that this way then. I know it this way now, but this is how it worked. So uh, Nita and I were just newlyweds, uh, just fresh out of radio school, uh, got a job in a radio station in the Twin Cities, and within a few months, I got fired. That's what happens in radio. You know, they don't like the way you look, and they, you're out. So evidently, I didn't, I didn't look as pretty as, never mind. Um, won't go there. So, so it's Christmas time. I am terrified. We're new Christians. I mean, how? Look, you know the you know the drill. Bills, rent, food, gas, student loans. How am I going to pay all this stuff? I was terrified. I was scared. Had no idea. Well, uh, our church was in the process of, of launching another church that was going to go across town, and uh, then we, we were called to a prayer meeting for that particular church. I decided to go. We weren't going to join the church plant, but I wanted to pray for the guy who was going to be the pastor, and I think Nita wasn't feeling well. She stayed home. I went to the church, prayed, and um, I was kneeling down in the, in, you know, like in the pew, and you know, the only thing I could think of was our current situation. I wasn't thinking about the church plan at all. I was thinking of every fear of my life, you know, just showing up before me. And I don't know, either somebody said it or it just popped into my head. I have no idea, but some, it was like, go to Hebrews 13.5. I said, okay. So I started looking for Hebrews. You know, the one in the Old Testament. That's how new of a Christian I was. I had no idea and I had no tabs. And I found out, no, it's not in the Old Testament. I mean, there's 39 books here. It's got to be here. So I said, okay, I'll go to the table of contents. Oh, I found Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. So I, I flipped through until I found it. I went to chapter 13. I read verse 5, and here are the six words that stood out to me. Be content with what you have. I was stunned. Stunned. I said, it's like, God, really? Be content without a job? Are you out? No, you're not. I am. What am I going to do? God, you know I've got bills. You've seen these bills. I have a wife. You gave me a wife. How am I supposed to support us? It's terrified. Be content with what you have. The only thing I could do at that point was say, okay. I give up. That's a good place to start. Guess what? Nothing changed. Go figure. Except I found I could, I, I, I found that Sears Roebuck, that's how old I am, Sears Roebuck, the store, was hiring for the Christmas season, and I got a job in the, uh, um, uh, 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 the department where they sell guns and tents, you know, what was it? What? Yeah, something like that, sporting goods. So, you know, we ate, the bills got paid, I got my job back eventually, it's been that way ever since. Every single time, I, I, every single time we have come into a crisis of some nature in our, in our family, uh, relationships, whatever, I've held on to those six words they changed my life forever. Six words from God's word are powerful enough to change your life, and that's why we need God's word in our lives. It's like, it's like laying in, you know, when you want a roaring fire, the best wood you can use is dense, 
thick wood because it keeps burning and burning and burning and that's the fuel for the fire. The word of God is that fuel for our lives. Now, now here was the surprise. We know teaching, we know admonition or encouragement and exhortation. And then Paul says singing. Singing? Singing is an important way for us to tap into the richness of Christ's word by rejoicing. It has been said that Christianity is a singing religion. We rejoice over every aspect of what this faith is teaching us. And one of the most animated quotes about singing in the church comes from Martin Luther. Look at this. He said, next to the word of God, so I think that's why Paul puts it, next to the word of God. He's got the word and then singing, so music. Next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. But any who remain unaffected by music are clodhoppers and are fit to hear only the words of dung poets and the music of pigs. So if you don't like music this morning, Martin Luther says you're a clodhopper. Not my words. Take it up with him next time you see him. Singing. Singing. Rejoicing in song. It's very natural for the people of God because God is a singing God. He is going to sing over his people, Zephaniah said in chapter 3. He is going to sing over his people. He is going to uh, array a, a, a choir to celebrate the fact that his salvation works and brings us to himself. And then we're going to join in that song and sing his praises for saving us. I am convinced that there is more theology caught by song than there ever is by sermons. I think preachers ought to sing their sermons. People might remember them better. Parents know this better than anybody. Anybody, any parent who's had a child come home from VBS and sings that song for the next 365 days knows that song is teaching your child some good theology. So we sing. So here's, here's, here's Paul. Here, here's my word through Paul's word to us as a church. Cornerstone, when we sing, sing robustly. And everybody said amen. Now, I'm serious. Sing it out. It doesn't matter if you can really sing. I can't sing. You're hearing my voice right now. It's terrible. I can't sing. But I can sing out loud, so long as there's nobody around. Sing robustly, because it's not about the song. It's about the object of the song and what he has done. Now, the final way that love is practiced is when Cornerstone Church boasts only in Christ. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed or do, any, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Throughout the Bible, there is a very important sense of calling attached to names. So, for example, Abraham, his name uh, meant exalted father or the father of many nations, and he was. Uh, Jacob's name meant supplanter, and he was. Solomon's name uh, meant peace, and the most important name in the Bible, Jesus, means God is salvation or God is our rescuer. So to do something in the name of another person we act in a way that discloses that person's character. If I were to give my daughter um, the power of attorney to sign documents in my name, 
her signature would have the same legal authority that my signature would have on that document. So to do something in Jesus' name means that we will conduct our way in a way that reveals and discloses Jesus' own character to others. Doing something in Jesus' name means that Cornerstone Church carries out all of its actions as if Jesus himself were doing it. It's sort of an incarnational um, kind of ministry in our words and our actions. And this is what it means to boast in Christ's name. It's not our words uh, only, but our actions that point to him. So I've wondered, have you ever wondered what people think when they think about Cornerstone Church? What are the things that come to their minds? If you were to ask them, they'll say a variety of things, like, well, we, I, we really come here for Jamie's preaching. I mean, he really ministers to us. Or uh, we, we, really, we really enjoy uh, children's ministries for our children. They do a great job. Or the website, we, we really are, are thankful for that, thankful for the worship team and the music, the generosity of the church during the pandemic. Um, family Fun Day, that's, that's coming up. All of these things are good things that God has blessed our church with, and, and we're thankful for all of them and for more. And our motive always in all of them has to be the boast in Jesus and his kindness and generosity. So what does it mean to practically to do everything in his name? Well, I, I was thinking of a, a couple of things, three actually, one of them is that we start with accepting everyone that Jesus accepts. People who are satisfied in Christ, satisfied in his gospel and the centrality of his shaping influence in their lives ought to always have a safe place here in our church because we all are growing as Christians. We're never going to look down on somebody uh, for their failure in the faith. We're going to help and we're going to pick them up. We're not going to look at their immaturity and say, what's wrong with you? How come you're not more mature? The reason they're not more mature is because you're not more mature. There's a lot to go. I think the second reason is that what, the whatever includes our words and the sorts of words we have and the vocabularies that we use and how we use them. So when we speak, when we speak to others, do we use gracious words that come from lips with the motive of strengthening the hearer and giving them hope or, or, or something else that they might need? Or are our words like those that we hear around, you know, in the office or place where you work? There's grumbling and complaining about the ridiculous decisions that our bosses are making or whatever. And the third is a, a matter of integrity. Are we in private what we are in public? When we're in public, you know, we, we act the right way and, you know, we try to be nice and that sort of thing. But when we go home, are we dismissive of the kids and do we kick the dog? You know, that, that's not the same person. So uh, is there integrity here in these two different places? Now, before we close, we, we can't miss this very obvious thing that Paul does. He instructs the church to be thankful. He does it in every verse. If you uh, look at it <coughs> again, <coughs> pardon me, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. <coughs> Hang on, I'll be with you in a second. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the 
word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. So here we are. Every single verse has something about cultivating a, a, th a thankfulness and gratitude in the church. And so you know, why, why does Paul say that? Why every single verse? Well, I think what he's doing here is he's giving us a method so that we can protect ourselves from the spiritual infections that would cause division and harm in the body of Christ. So we might call thankfulness a sort of vaccine against spiritual ills that might creep into the church. When some toxic gospel promotes arguments, and it will, every single one will, they produce arguments and dissensions and dissatisfactions in the life of a church, we need to cast them down, reject them. And, and part of the way that we reject them is to remind one another of the treasure house of riches in Christ so that our faith rises and we become thankful for what God has given us and we reject that that is toxic. So the more we cultivate thankfulness, the more we are boasting in Christ. Gratitude deepens our appreciation for him and it gives us a firm grip on our salvation but it also gives us a greater appreciation for those for whom Christ died. And remember, it says those people for whom Christ died are precious to him. They should be precious to us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power to love and that out of your glorious riches, you strengthen us through your spirit in our inner being. We ask you for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit of love in us because we lack it. We lack your love. We lack your power to love, and we won't have it unless you give it to us. And that's what we're asking for now, that you would fill us afresh with your love. We thank you that as believers we know that Christ dwells richly in our hearts. And so when the world sh is shouting that we're supposed to hate, help us to love. Uh, when, when the past won't let us go, help us to love. When the enemy taunts us with lies and surrounds us with darkness, help us to love. When a relationship feels broken or we're betrayed or rejected, again, help us to love even when it seems impossible, even when it doesn't make sense. May our lives be filled with your love and power today and every day as we walk in your spirit of love. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.